Hello, and welcome to the latest in the Walkley Foundation's ongoing podcast series, which brings you the best journalistic talent from Australia and around the world. Uh, good evening, everyone, and welcome to tonight's Walkley Media Talk, hosted by our event partner, the State Library of New South Wales. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Christopher Warren, and I'm the Federal Secretary of the Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance, who've been the proud trustees of the Walkley Foundation since 1956. Uh, and I'm particularly pleased, I'm pleased to welcome you all here tonight, uh, particularly those of you who've been innovative enough to find us via Meetup. Uh, I'd like to acknowledge and pay my respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the elders, past and present of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Uh, the Walkley Foundation is proud to present this, the latest in our series of public talks in partnership with the State Library. Uh, independently funded, with a proud custodian of a tradition of excellence in Australian uh, journalism, including facilitating important conversations about our industry. Uh, with announcements of redundancies and cuts at major me mainstream media organisations, with Fairfax flashing its photographic department, <coughs> Channel 10 abandoning all day news and the Seven Network sniffing at the edges, it's clear that the traditional models for supporting journalism are struggling. People still want great journalism, and there are still plenty of people making great journalism, but particularly advertising, which has traditionally subsidised a large part of the expensive process of news gathering uh, through the mainstream media in the 20th century, is no longer enough to support journalism in the 21st century. So tonight we're going to be looking forward. Uh, we're in a period of great change for journalism, not just for the business models, the way journalists work, the way audiences access stories, and the way journalism and journalists are valued and paid for. What are the new models that are going to keep journalism strong? Now, innovation, both technological and entrepreneurial, has a mixed history in Australia. There have been some spectacular examples all the way back to the stump jump plough or the hill's hoist. <coughs> but when resources are tight, how can we avoid to risk a big idea not working out? When we examine the stories of innovators who've had success, failure is always a big part of their journey. And when we look at hotbeds of innovation like Silicon Valley, it's rarely that you're expected to get it right first try. Having a great idea is just the start. You need to research, develop, test, adjust and test again. And you need to be surrounded by people taking risks, swapping stories, interacting, collaborating and great ideas will then find support and grow into, into actuality. And that kind of culture of innovation is something we're starting to see emerge in the Australian media and we at the Walkley Foundation are very excited to be part of the journey. Uh, very soon, uh, next week I think actually, the Walkleys will announce the recipients of the inaugural Walkley Grant for Innovation in Journalism, giving out $40,000 for exciting new projects in Australian media with thanks to the support of Google. We had more than 120 applications from around Australia, uh, from cities and regional areas, from community groups and from entrepreneurs. Uh, innovators, particularly media and journalism innovators, come in all shapes and sizes. And it was exciting to see how many people want to see journalism adapt and flourish and be part of that journey. As well as seed funding for a handful of promising projects, the Walkley Grants hope to build something bigger by giving those innovators a space to share stories, collaborate, find resources and become an innovation community. It's, of course, a fascinating time for journalism. The double-edged sword of data, which is allowing us to both 
track our audiences and what they want, while it also raises issues of how journalists can be protected and particularly how their sources can be protected now that we know that we live in a post-Snowden world. We've seen the rise of citizen journalism, user-generated content and the importance of verification. The powerful new ways we can tell stories in digital formats, the blurred lines of native advertising and the power of collaboration between news organisations. So now we're going to hear from some very exciting speakers uh, with an eye to the future. They're people who've launched or participated in new media outlets that are genuinely kicking goals. They've written about technology, uh, from broadcasting to gaming. They're at the forefront of digital and online tools to help journalists gather news and tell stories. And they're going to share their thoughts about where our industry is heading, uh, about who's getting it right and how we can nurture innovation in the Australian media. You can join in the conversation, and I urge you to do so on Twitter using the hashtag hash Walkley. Just make sure your phones are silent. So let's start with uh, tonight's guests. First, Seth Harmon, who's a Sydney-based writer and editor and is the managing editor of Junkie.com, a politics, pop culture and comment website that launched in the beginning of 2013. Uh, she was the editor of Sydney Street Press, The Brag, for three years and has contributed to The Guardian, Time Out, The Vine, Beat Magazine and The Music Network. Uh, Johnny Liu uh, is a Communications and Public Affairs Manager for Google Australia and New Zealand, walking, working across products such as Google Search, Google Maps and YouTube. And I'm sure he's also working on a driverless car. Uh, Johnny works with newsrooms to help them use Google tools in their reporting and most recently led the company's initiative around the Australian election. Before joining Google, uh, Johnny was a journalist for SBS uh, with Insight, World News Australia, as well as producing the online multimedia documentary, Dragon Children. Mary Hamilton is audience development editor for Guardian Australia. She also designs games, heard zombies, reads books, drinks coffee, and commits random acts of journalism. <laughs> and finally, a publisher, Phil Sandberg, who spent over 21 years reporting on technology and policy issues affecting the TV, radio and recording interest industries throughout Australia, New Zealand and Southeast Asia. His credits include TV Technology and Production Magazine and eight years with Broadcast Engineering News. Will you please welcome our panel? So the way we thought we'd uh, try to do this is to so I'll ask a few questions uh, and uh, we'll see how we go from there. And uh, can feel free to uh, answer them or not answer them if they've got something more interesting to say. Uh, uh, look, I'd like to start with uh, you, Mary, uh, because you've written a lot about, uh, about gaming, uh, and uh, gamification has become a bit of a buzzword for news organisations, how they can engage better with, uh, with their audience. So I wonder if you could talk a bit about what that means and how it can work for journalists or in journalism, and you've got any examples of that. Uh, sure. So, um Gamification isn't something that we do very much of at The Guardian, largely because for the most part it doesn't really work. Um, it's a, in, in theory, it's the tools and techniques behind applying game mechanics to non-game things, um, whether that's sort of applying a badge system to commenting or a point system. Um, so those kinds of, those kinds of uh, ideas. However, the main problem with gamification is that what it tends to do is incentivise things that don't necessarily that you don't necessarily want people to do. So, for instance, if you give out a badge for being for commenting once, then you'll get an awful lot of people who comment once with the word first 
or yay, or I'm only commenting because I want a badge. <laughs> so what you end up with is this, these fantastic kind of fantastic in theory ideas behind um, in, encouraging community participation, which if they're not very carefully implemented and very well thought through, tend to actually you don't necessarily end up getting people to do the thing that you want. You just end up with them trying to do the thing because they because they want to jump through a hoop for you. Um, so yeah. is gamification just another kind of fancy word for getting the audience engaged? For the most part, yes. Um, it's just that there's a lot of companies and consultants who think they can make a lot of money by putting the word gamification near what they're doing, <laughs> um, which is a very cynical way of looking at it, but in my experience it's tended to be true. Um, I think there's a much more interesting opportunity for newsrooms around actual games. Though. Yeah. Um, so there's a UK site that you guys may not have heard of called Us Versus Them, which is an innovative kind of project side project being done by the Mirror, the Daily Mirror, which is a red-top tabloid um, newspaper in the UK. Um, today, there's been a lot of controversy in the last couple of days about the London Mayor Boris Johnson buying up uh, water cannons um, for use on protesters. These are water cannons which have been, in it, it's been, you've been used in Germany for nearly 25 years. They're being sold because they killed a protester in Germany. They're not approved for use in the UK. There's an awful lot of kind of issues around this. And what Earth versus them has done is they've made a game where you can water cannon Boris Johnson. <laughs> and it works on mobile, and you, 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 do, you water cannon Boris Johnson as many times as you can, and then it lets you share that to Facebook or to Twitter with your score. Um, you know, I've, I've water cannon Boris Johnson 47 times before without maiming any bystanders. Um, and all that does is it gets people with a little kind of snappy thing. It's not a deep engagement with that story, but it's a, a moment of touch with that story, with lots and lots of stuff around it to get people more involved, more engaged. And it's speaking to a young audience that otherwise might just not be aware of that, might not care about it, in a very digital native way. Does it have an enduring benefit? Does that mean that people are more likely to come back then to the website, or is it just a one-off? Well, you have Obviously to. More effectively. Well, you have to assume that if if if, if people come to, come to your site for one game, then they might come to your site for a second game. Um, if people come to you for the first time, you have to have some kind of plan about getting them at least a proportion of them to come back for a second time. That's kind of the second phase of things like that. First it's reach and then it's about um, getting them to come back. Um, I suppose one of the ways in which you can gamify new stories, this is, this is, this is not a particularly funky segue, uh, is with data journalism and empowering people to use data, put data up and then use data, uh, then, you, then and they empower people to basically play around with the data to get the stories that they want or to generate stories for people. What's an example of the way the Guardian's been playing with us? Um, sure, so we've got a, um, a data blog which is run by Nick Evershed. Um, uh, it, well, the Australian edition is run by Nick Evershed, um, which takes interesting, interesting data sets, interesting facts, um, and just kind of deconstructs them a bit, ideally in ways that let other people deconstruct them too. Um, we did some work with crowdfund, uh, sorry, crowdsourcing as well around uh, MPs' expenses, politicians' expenses, where we made the data set available in a form that was very easy to download and easy to look through, and asked other people to come and help and work with us to try and dig out through these sort of thousands and thousands and thousands of records where the interesting bits were, um, where the bits were that, 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 that a single journalist couldn't necessarily hope to find on their own. Yeah, that's quite a famous example. And, and were there a lot of stories generated out of people saying, oh, well, look at this, what my local MP's doing? Or? There, there were quite a few, yeah. Was, and we had a surprising number of emails sort of from people who were interested in the project and saying, I didn't find anything, but thank you for opening it up and letting me do this. So, yeah. And, um, uh, Johnny, Google is, I suppose, um, 
become a, both two, a key platform for journalism, but it's also, uh, you've also been trying to develop tools that journalists can use. Do you want to, want to give, give us some examples of, of those? Sure. Um, I guess to start off with the, I guess, with my question, I guess, or answering the question about like why Google cares about journalism in the first place. Um, you know, it's a very important relationship for Google. A lot of people come to Google to find out news, you know, and, and, and lots of Google search index is made up of news. And on the other side as well, um, a lot of news websites' traffic also comes from Google. I think something like a billion a billion clicks per month comes from Google to news websites as well. So it's a really important and symbiotic relationship between between news outlets and Google. Um, we when we look at you know making tools, um, you know, we look at kind of making tools that which are scalable and that people can actually use. You know, obviously at Google um, we don't have journalists, we have um, engineers basically. And um, you know, there's a lot big difference between the two. They don't wear shoes as well, being one of the things, but um, you know, they look at building kind of tools which people can use. So um, the Guardian is actually one of, one of kind of a great example of using some of these Google tools. So, for example, you know Google Maps. Um, you know, you and I use Google Maps every single day to, to get around and, and to find things. But um, you know, one of the things that you can actually do with Google Maps, and which a lot of journalists are doing and the Guardian are doing, is actually using maps to tell a story. So they may find a, a layer of, of data. For example, it could be demographic data. Uh, it could be data about health spending or, or you know, or, um, obesity rates in different kind of parts of the country. And they're actually using that data and, and overlaying it on their, onto their own Google Maps so that when people come to their website, they're not just looking at, oh, here's a chart or you know, here's one story about um, you know, who, who were the you know, obese people in, in Britain. You can actually go into the map and actually look up your own address and find out, look, what's the obesity rates in, in my suburb compared to the town you know, across from me. And you know, they, they can do that with obviously lots of different data. Uh, school funding is another one that the Guardian has done as well. So um, you know, that's kind of one of, the, one of the big tools where you can actually use it to tell, I guess, story and data in a, in a different and interesting way. Uh, one of the issues about data journalism, I suppose, or about data graphical representations is, um, I Phil or anyone may have some idea of this, is that I hear a number of editors say it's a lot of effort putting in to design it for something someone might look at for 20 seconds or is that. So is that a, is there kind of a input reward challenge with these things sometimes? I, I think it depends on um, what uh, what the data is presenting really. Uh, I sit on a uh, 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 international broadcasting um, convention innovation awards that held every year in Amsterdam and a couple of years ago, we had a, an entry from Brazil which used Google Maps to chart uh, pollution. And uh, so it, 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 did, it had quite a long life to it. So people could see where the polluters were and the rivers where they lived near and actually do something about it. And that was a, it wasn't something that was, a, it wasn't, certainly wasn't a, a snacking um, site. So uh, it, 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 I think it does depend on, um, on on what you're trying to convey. So if you're, so if you're not if you're not if you're only attracting people just for a click through and move on, you, you're not designing it properly, or you're not you're not making best use of the data. Again, it, it depends what your purpose is, really. I guess you know. But if you know, you could you could argue that celebrity stories perform the same function. Um, 
to snack and click through, but um, things that have a bit of social value to them tend to be a bit longer lasting. And uh, Seth, a junkie, why, why do you think you're striking a chord with? Why are you being? What, what, why do you feel you're being as successful as you are being? Um. Well, <laughs> um, uh, I think that there was a definite gap in the market. So for people who don't know Junkie, it's um, uh, yeah, pop culture, kind of a youth-based market. We started being like 19 to 29, now it's kind of 19 to 35. Um, I think that it's partly because we are independent and we do news coverage in a different way. Um, so a lot of young people, you know, you hear time and time again that young people are really disengaged with politics and disaffected. But if we look at our most popular articles on Junkie, they're always the political ones. I'm not sure what that is. I'm not sure what that says about the way that we're approaching politics. Um, and I don't think everyone should approach it like us, too, because we, you know, we're quite flippant. Occasionally it's just a satire or very biased opinion pieces. Um, but I do think that there's definite gap there that isn't being filled by a lot of Australian news outlets to try and get these people who everyone's just assuming are disengaged and actually bring them back into the conversation. Um, in terms of data journalism, I think that it's a really, really interesting space. And, and uh, you know, you're seeing in states sites like Vox and 538 and New York Times is the upshot of these explainer sites that bring in data and use graphs to tell the story. But it does come up against this risk of, yes, a pretty graph is nice and an interactive graph is fun to play with, but you still really need journalists to use that data to tell the story. And I think, I think that's one thing that people kind of miss out on or forget about when they're creating, you know, graphs and pretty pictures from, from all of this data. It's a really exciting stage. We do have all this information at our fingertips. And, you know, as long as people keep freeing data and, and letting other people use it to create stories, there could be a lot of really interesting things happening in journalism, but we have to remember the journalists' role in that as well. And do you do much about journalism? No, we haven't. No, we've got a tiny thing. We don't have the resources for that. <laughs> And uh, you kind of describe your distinguish your political coverage as being perhaps more irre more irreverent, more critical, I guess. Yeah. Is that obviously that's a deliberate strategy? And do you think that's what does appeal to your particular audience? I think it's partly that. We also do a lot of um, less satirical, actual, just explaining journalism, where you know you're uh, you're kind of bombarded with a lot of stories online, and if you're not engaged with the actual topic, it can be really alienating. So we had a series called Junk Explained where we try to go back to the bare, bare base of what people are talking about so that someone can catch up with everything that's just happened and it will maybe get them more involved in the conversation that's about to keep going on. I think I, I, think I read that Jay Rosen once said that we're very good at... We, we're like a software company that only sends out updates and never gives people the original uh, yeah. software. Yeah. And so is that kind of what you're trying to... Yeah, I think so. And um, the... We talked a bit about data journalism. Phil, you say so you've judged a number of innovation competitions. What other key things do you see emerging through that? Well, certainly, um, the the use of uh, I guess what people would call big data is uh, is coming to the fore. Not so much in what I'd call uh, the important end of journalism, but certainly in uh, things things that can be presented as that are just generally part of a news service anyway, so the weather or the traffic reports, um, taking data from a variety of sources, including public sources like Twitter and 
and Facebook and so forth and presenting that to people uh, either online, visually, or even um, as part of a radio broadcast. So, and do you find people are trying to use Twitter as an information source, and what are the benefits or, and also the traps in doing that? Well, I think, I think Twitter is uh, quite ephemeral, really. It's like a big bucket. So um, there are spikes and there are, there are troughs. And, and I think really, it, it, of course, it depends what um, area of journalism you, you're coming from. But say, in a you know, financial uh, press or B2B situation, uh, a platform like LinkedIn would be of much more use because uh, you can see when people are changing their positions or they might post something about their company. Uh, or uh, might have some link to a self-promoting blog, uh, and it, but there are more appropriate platforms depending on what you're actually trying to do. So we we would never do. Facebook is pretty useless to us, but but LinkedIn is quite important. I was reading um, Michael Lewis's book about hyperfast trading, where he's where none of the companies will actually talk to him about hyperfast trading. But he found all their profiles on LinkedIn where they were all bragging about all the work they were uh, doing, all their expertise in it, and that's how he was actually able to effectively research his background yeah. on it. And is that, um, John, you may have some idea of this, is, is there a sense in which people are oddly more honest and open in, when they're writing in social media or on the internet generally than they are when you actually ring them up on the phone? Wow. Um, me, perhaps. So, um, I think, you know, this is kind of just generally that people are more, you know, over the last few years, people are more comfortable to put them, you know, more of themselves online. I think um, you think about, I think about, you know, during university, high school perhaps, when you were on the internet and you were always told to never use your real name and to, you know, never kind of have anything out there. And these days, you, you look at how comfortable anyone is at putting their real names out, you know, whether, whether or not it's via Facebook, or putting a profile on LinkedIn, or using their real names on, on Twitter. Uh, I think over the last few years, we, we've seen, you know, I've kind of noticed that, you know, there has been a big shift towards, you know, this, you know, being anonymous on the internet to actually being yourself on, online. And, you know, partially it's probably driven by things like Facebook, I think, where, you know, you had to actually sign up with a university account and therefore you have to use your real name. And, you know, I think that started bringing, uh, bringing an identity to the web um, and that's, I guess, changed a lot for, for journalists as well, but it's just changed the web in general, I think. Not much relief, whether anyone can answer this, but has it affected comments that, that now comments on, particularly on news stories, are more likely to be done on someone's real name, or are they still largely done on... In, um, with, um, we still find that we have a lot of pseudonymous accounts because we make it... At the Guardian, we deliberately decided that we want pseudonymity, persistent pseudonymity, be a feature of the comment system. Um, we see a lot of value in allowing people to register and comment under names that aren't their own, especially because we do a lot of work in, in places like Egypt, places like the Middle East, where we've had commenters on, on our live blogs from protest areas with important things to say and important things to share who would absolutely never even dream of speaking under their real name about the things that they want to speak about. And you monitor all your comments? We, post, we, we do a thing called post-moderation. So there's several different kinds of moderation. There's pre-moderation, where you check everything before you publish it. And then post-moderation, where if something's reported to you, you'll go back to it afterwards and take a look. 
Um, some threads we watch very closely, others we wait to, other we, we, we kind of, others we rely on the community to sort of self, to self-report and to self-monitor. And we make those reporting tools very easy, very obvious to use. We have 24-hour moderation now as well, so. Right. And you expect, your reporters are expected to moderate, not moderate, but follow the comments on their own stories? They're expected to participate where possible. Um, it isn't always possible, but they're expected to, to try. And if you're running a live blog, then you're yep. essentially you're opening a little bar. Um, and it would be really, really rude to open your bar and then sit behind the bar and not talk to anybody who comes in and not have any security on the door and just assume that everything would be fine. And there are lots and lots of places that open comments with this kind of approach where you can just open as many bars as you want and then um, people turn up and there's nobody there and they wreck the place. And everyone's surprised. And these are little these are little spaces, online spaces, that require participation from the staff in order for them to function. So you mean when you operate that way, people do just behave better? Yeah. Yeah, yeah they do. And does Junkie, do you have comments on your, or how, does that, how do you work that? Um, yes, we do have comments. So we use a system called Discus, which a lot of sites use now. Um, um, we, a lot of our comments are actually under people's names, because people can register for accounts on Discus. And, um, we get most of our traffic from Facebook, not LinkedIn. So about 70% of our traffic comes through Facebook, um, which is, you know, if you look at media companies that are expanding and are growing really, really quickly, um, their social media strategies, the way that they talk to Facebook and Twitter is a hugely important part of what they're doing. So sites like Upworthy, BuzzFeed, the Gawker Media Group, they all have strategies in place for how they're going to present their content and how people can engage with it afterwards. Um, so for us, comments are, you know, some people can register Facebook accounts if they want to, but it's much easier to just sign in directly through Facebook. Um, yeah, again, I think that the social media stuff is, is a really, really interesting and important um, part of innovating in, in the digital space, too, I think. Do you want to get, you got some other examples of that, of how you're using that? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, social media at the moment is, the number one driver of traffic to most websites. So big legacy brands like the New York Times who recently um, had their digital strategy leaked online and they're freaking out at the moment because they've just found, like, realised that nobody is going to NewYorkTimes.com anymore or only the really loyal people are. People are finding New York Times now through Twitter and through Facebook and they're not working out the best way to grab them from Twitter and Facebook. So sites like Upworthy who are really good at galvanizing that group, they write 25 different headlines for every single post they put online and they A-B test every one of them to see which is working best on Facebook and which is working best on Twitter. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's great if you have the resources to do it, but it just shows that you know these sites that are growing really fast and learning quickly how to use social media. In this sense, Google's a bit like social media too. It's a major way. It's probably, I think, still the major way people find individual stories isn't it, through through Google. We're, we're probably old hats compared to the Twitters and the um, we're old compared to the Twitters and the Facebook now. But uh, definitely, I think you know Google News and just through search engines, um, you know, after a big way that um, you know, news sites get get traffic up as well. And you do see, I think, what a lot of news websites are cottoning onto is. Uh, optimizing their content to be found on things like Google Google Search, basically. So um, they'll use a tool called Google Trends, which is basically, uh, you know, kind of like a, a tool which allows them to see what are the, what's the top thing that people are searching on Google right now. What are they interested in? 
uh, interested in. And uh, from that, it helps them kind of guide, okay, look, this is what people are interested in. Maybe I should you know, write a story about interest rates because interest rates is kind of really big at the moment. Um, it also helps them decide in terms of the headlines they may write. Um, so for example, you know, if you're writing a story about a crime, um, you know, and, and you know, someone's you know, someone being killed, um, maybe more people are using the words, you know, um, police officer killed rather, police, rather than police officer murdered. And they'll be able to tell that with Google Trends and, and they kind of optimise their headlines to make sure, you know, look, are, are people um, looking up, you know, what my headline actually is? And that's kind of how they, they're optimising their, um, their site to be found. And you're making some algorithmic changes too to, to Google on, to, to kind of try to sort by quality more than... We make, we make like 500 changes sure. a year, so we make... <laughs> I was like, really? We're making another one? Um, yeah, no, I think, um, you know, the, the engineers are always looking at, at you know, making uh, Google more relevant and, and being able to surface more content. I think uh, even from the, the beginning, um, you know, the founders, Larry and, and Sergey, when they made Google, um, you know, it was very important for them to be able to, to surface, you know, authoritative information and that's kind of uh, part of the basis in which, you know, they made the original algorithm for, for websites to be found were to look at, you know, what are the reputable sites, you know, who are they linking to, how many people are linking to this site as a way for them to kind of figure out what to, to put up top. Uh, and Phil, yeah. Yeah, look, I just um, also uh, just wanted to add into that was um, this whole notion of uh, apps that uh, curate content for, for the users. So uh, platforms like Zyte or, um, or Flipboard, which has just bought Zyte um, after Zyte was bought by CNN for about $30 million or something. So you put your, your interests in and uh, the algorithms go and suck in the content and it brings it in from whatever site, wherever it is, it might be a mainstream news site or it might just be somebody's blog. But effectively, it, it cuts out the home page, it cuts out social media, and it cuts out Google. And, um, and these are uh, imperfect platforms, but uh, certainly you get the feeling that you're in control of the news or the content generally that you're consuming. And it's generally true, that, and I think this is, I think, I it said, it came out of the New York Times um, uh, paper, which is kind of very worth, worth reading by anyone who's interested in the, the future of the media, uh, that the, the large media organisations are often struggling to come to grips with what their relationship with social media is, in a sense, because they've traditionally been basically in control of what people read and, and how they read it. Do you find that most of the large media companies are struggling with that? Uh, I don't know anyone who does it particularly well. I think also there is a tendency for in, in organisations where you have large numbers of journalists and every journalist has their own account uh, and maybe they follow internal policies regarding social media or not. But it does that by doing that splinters your brand immediately. So uh, perhaps you know I understand why they do it. I understand why the journalists do it, but um, it doesn't really serve the masthead. Well, I don't know. Sorry, I disagree. Okay. I disagree quite strongly with that actually, um, because 
journalists don't, just as journalists don't just exist as ever masthead, but also all evidence of what works on Twitter is that what works on Twitter is people and not brands. And if you have five journalists who are all people, who all have beats, who all have friends, who all have an active in, in, and quite personal approach to Twitter, all tweeting a story, that's much, much, much better than having one masthead tweeting it. Okay. Well, um, I'll just. I used used to be the uh, I guess the the house rep for the union at a previous publishing company, so that's part of my background. But as someone who owns a small publishing uh, company, um, the journalists are there to serve the masthead, as far as I'm concerned. And and so if um, if anything which dilutes the masthead such as uh, journalists having their own uh, following. And, and I, I, you know, I'm not saying this in a negative way particularly, but it, it does dilute the masthead. And, and particularly if the journalists move camp, you know, and people follow them. I suppose yeah. my, so my, part of my thinking on this comes from our experience during the London riots, um, when one of our journalists went to Twitter and said, where should I be? Um, on the, I think it was the second or the third night of the London riots, and on the basis of the responses he got, he went to Birmingham, um, which is quite a long way north of London, and was not where anybody else was at the time. And as a result of doing so, we got exclusive video, we got exclusive interviews, we got it, we, and we were actually on the ground um, when very little was happening in London, and two people died in Birmingham. And Twitter isn't just about promoting your work. It isn't just about promoting the masthead. Um, journalists are not maybe may exist in in work to promote the masthead. That's not what they're doing on Twitter. What they should be doing on Twitter is actually using it as a tool to get stories, not just to push them out. If they're only using it as a promotional tool, then to be honest, they might as well just set an RSS feed and go home. Well, I was just going to add to that. I think that there's nothing more valuable for a masthead than a journalist who is engaged with their audience, because. You know, you're seeing at the moment, you know, what we were talking about before, about the fact that no one's visiting homepages anymore. There's this other buzzword, which is unbundling, where people are kind of taking out parts of their masters and delivering it to people in a, a very specific content form. So the New York Times, um, I'll go back to that as an example, because it was a really interesting paper. Um, they uh, have an opinion on unbundling service now, where for $6 a month, you just get New York Times opinion articles, if that's the thing you like to read. And so if you think of journalists as unbundled deliverers of content to your market, they're actually really valuable. Well, valuable in the sense, I suppose publishers would say valuable in the sense of getting people to read the content. But yeah. how do you, use that terrible phrase, monetize that value? Well, because people are clicking on their links and going to your market. That's the story. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I know one of the, there's been this, it's not terrible, but with the ABC, has got this poster saying, requiring all their reporters to take ABC out of their Twitter, top of Twitter handle, whereas I think Fox re requires their reporters to have Fox in their, Fox Sport in Australia, requires them to have Fox in their, uh, their, their Twitter handle, which I suppose reflects those two different views about uh, about what, what uh, about, about how different corporations want to I think want that to would probably come down more to the fact that the ABC needs to be appearing as an unbiased news source, and people talk about their articles on Twitter, but they also talk about their opinions. So to have ABC attached to an opinion that they don't want to be publicising might maybe that's part, partly the government-funded thing. Well, sure, I'll be a whole lot of. Uh,
whole lot of factors in it. I'm interested in really any of you can jump in, jump in on this. It's a question, but it is this question of a lot of this puts a lot of responsibility on journalists. Traditionally, the idea of a journalist promoting themselves was kind of quite naff. It was kind of, you know, you'll soon set up yourself, and now it's kind of, well, it's not kind of, it is expected that you will be actively promoting your own uh, your own brand. Phil, so do you notice that journalists sometimes struggle with that as well? Yeah, I think I think so. But I guess um, I guess it's something that you see a lot more of in uh, in the US, for instance. Uh, so somebody will come out uh, with a book at the end of it, and so there's a whole promotional cycle to go along with that. Um, although, having said that, there are a lot of there's been a lot of books lately about uh, whichever media company you don't work for <laughs> and the downfall of them versus <laughs> us. So, um, it's actually what, usually what media company you used to work for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't... It, I guess also, there, it, perhaps, perhaps here there's a bit of... Um, uh, you seem a bit compromised if, if there's a commercial perception to, to what you're doing. So, But we have seen journalists who are uh, building a real profile for themselves, particularly using uh, using Twitter. Um, someone like, say, uh, Peyton Clymer in the coverage of the, obviously, some of the very high profile to start with. Uh, are we going to see more and more journalists, or are we seeing more and more journalists? Is it particularly useful for younger journalists when you're trying to address a younger uh, demographic now? Um, Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's a really, really important thing for young journalists, and I always say to journalists, I kind of encourage them to have it, because I think, especially for us when we launched, um, we wanted to build a stable of really strong writers, and we needed to make a bit of a splash, because no one knew who we were, where we were coming from, what we were about. So we tried to launch with 10 writers that had big social media followings, because that meant that we were taking their audiences and bringing them to us too. So I think it's really important for young journalists. I think that there's a lot of pushback for older journalists because it's you know it's a new form and they're not used to having direct engagement with people who are reading their content. And I think that's natural. That comes with any kind of new technology. Um, people don't you know it, it does tear down a wall that that is being torn down in so many other ways at the moment between an outlet and its audience, um, and it can be really really terrifying. And I totally understand that. I think um, I think it's also not appropriate for some journalists. Um, and for others, it's more appropriate. For opinion columnists, it's a really useful tool. If it's not appropriate to you, can you survive? In the, if you're not going to embrace, as an individual, not going to embrace whether it's Twitter or any form of social media or promotional brand, is there really a role for you? Oh, absolutely. If you're a good journalist, I think that it doesn't. It, you don't need an extra platform to shout from. Um, or, is, or does it affect the way? Because a lot of journalism depends on having contact. Contacts will deal with you. If you don't have a public profile, does that mean contacts are less likely to deal with you? I'm not sure I can answer that one. <laughs> I think it depends on how good a journalist you are. I think it's certainly much, start, much harder to start now. But if you're David Moore, you're never going to need Twitter. Yeah. That's exactly <laughs> what I was thinking of. <laughs> There's one example, um, and she won't mind because I'm going to say good things about her, but um, a lady called Fiona Smith, who's over at Fairfax, and she used to be the workplace writer for, uh, I think it was BRW, when it was still a reprint, and now they're online, and now she writes across Fairfax. But, you know, I was chatting to her the other day, and she said to me, look, um, I'm, uh, you know, I, I've been writing about workplace for 20 years or something like that, very experienced journal, 
So I don't think it's all about you know being young and old or anything. And she said, you know, I'm, it's, for me, it's about creating a brand for her, right? And so what she has, she has Twitter, and of course she's on Twitter, and she updates about it. But what impressed me was she was also on LinkedIn, which is obviously where a lot of her readers come from. And not only is she on LinkedIn, she actually has like a group, you know, like she has her own group about you know people who are interested in workplace issues and all that kind of stuff. And she actually she sees it as part of her job to actually. Uh, you know, create a community around her content. So it's not just about her writing about the workplace, but about, look, I, I am known for writing a workplace, I have all that kind of contacts, but, you know, I should also own creating that community or actually be part of that conversation. And it really impressed me about her, and I kind of thought, look, you know, we all often say, oh, look, you know, old journos versus new journos, and, you know, old media versus new media, but, you know, she struck, struck me as an example of someone who kind of got it when it came to that. Nick, Nick Christoph, um, as well as a US journalist, is I think a similar age, and he is absolutely incredible on Facebook. And so Facebook, you know about Facebook Follow? Facebook recently kind of in, a, in an attempt to sort of start to become Twitter in a weird, <laughs> weird process, um, introduced the ability to follow people. And if you're a journalist and you're writing a lot and you're putting your work on Facebook, then you can open yourself up to being followed by people who aren't necessarily your friends. And I think Nick Christoph is about somewhere in the region of 100,000 odd people yeah. who follow all of his posts and he updates about his work and then talks to the people that comment. And obviously not all of them because there are far too many of them and many of them are very weird people. Um, <laughs> but he has that community and he owns that space. And although it's, a, it's something that I think a lot of people still think of Facebook as a very personal space, it's much more true now than it was I think even a year ago. That something that you post on Facebook publicly can be shared out and 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 turned into something that's actually oftentimes much bigger than an equivalent of a tweet, especially for young journalists. I think it's a, it's a kind of overlooked tool for doing this sort of thing. Yeah, because we do talk about Twitter a lot, but I wonder whether Facebook, or, and I'm just going to say about LinkedIn, whether the journalists just kind of don't get LinkedIn a bit. I think most journalists who don't work in B2B places tend to think of LinkedIn as quite a boring place, mm. right here or otherwise. Um, you sound like you think it's a bit boring. Um, certainly, I don't have the conversations there that I've when I've been there in the past. I don't bother with there anymore, to be honest. Do you? Um, but that's because I no longer have a beat. Um, when I did have a beat, and when I was a local journalist, it was absolutely brilliant for finding local business people and like, finding sources. I've actually heard LinkedIn described as Facebook for growing ups. Yeah. <laughs> um, we can move on to questions. If anyone's got questions they want to ask of any of our panel? Can I, can I take the last one, yep. I just want to ask all of the panel, what do you consider to be innovation in journalism? Because you obviously come from very different places and you're doing some pretty cool stuff. What, what is innovation for you? What does it look like in the, in the workplace? I'll have a Look, I think there's, a, there's two phases of innovation. So one is the, uh, the audience. Facing, uh, which we've discussed a bit about here with data journalism. I also think there is a lot of innovation to be still to be made in the actual process of, of publishing or the process of putting journalism together. And, and and I guess we talk about Twitter accounts that journalists might have, but a lot of the financial pressures that have been on uh, media organisations over the last decade or so have meant that people are doing more than just writing a story, they, they might be taking a, a camcorder out, they'll tweet about it at the same time. And I think if, uh, you know, 
perhaps helping to alleviate a lot of the uh, financial pressures that are on these companies is finding ways to innovate and drive costs down, but still, you know, keep quality output going. I'd add another one, um, like another type of innovation, which is organisational innovation. So, innovating the way that your company perceives digital technology. So, you know, uh, rather than treating the first page of the newspaper as the thing that you need to focus on all, all, all day, treating it as an hourly process, and, and instead of thinking as soon as an, an article is published, that's the end of its life, thinking of that as the beginning of its life, and thinking about follow-up stories if it's particularly you know, resonating with people, um, you know, working out how to make your company really work well on mobile because most traffic is coming from mobile, um, well, in a lot of organisations. Like, I think BuzzFeed just came out this week and said that they've just experienced a shift and now the majority is coming from mobile as opposed to desktop. And we built Junkie as a mobile-first um, site because we knew that that was the shift and that was the trend that was happening. So just, I guess, wrapping organisational, organisationally wrapping your head around digital and restructuring bottom-up to try and meet stuff head-on rather than ad, ad hoc solutions to small problems. Um, there's, I guess there's a couple of things. Um, one of the biggest places where I see organisations, news organisations innovating is around internal data. So information about who does what on the website when and why. That why bit is really, really tricky to work out from the numbers, but you can generally do it the same way that a good data journalist can get why information and story information out of external figures. Um, increasingly, news organisations are starting to look inward and to look at what's actually happening on their own sites, and a lot of the time discovering that it's kind of really interesting. And it doesn't always work the way that you think it's going to, and that it keeps changing. So I think news organisations find more and more ways to work out what data organisationally they think is important and then act on that is going to have a big impact on what happens further down the line. But I think the most important thing to remember is that innovation isn't just a thing that you do and then it stops. Um, there seems to be this, it, it, for a lot of organisations, there's this idea that you can innovate and then you'll be done innovating and you can kind of get on with life <laughs> after innovation. And it isn't ever going to work like that ever again. And I think the scariest thing for lots of organisations is, is so, so, okay, so we've moved to the internet and we're all on the internet and now suddenly we've got to go to mobile and what what's next after mobile? It's not... It, it isn't ever a process that can be done. Um, and organisationally adjusting to that is the most terrifying thing in the world and also right now probably the most important. Oh, I think one of the things that we, we probably will see more of as we go on is the prevalence of people with computer science degrees in the media. Um, you know, I, I sit next to engineers all day and they tell me how important their jobs are and, and it is. Uh, you know, and the way they say it to me is that, you know, Let's look at the media. You know, the internet has has fundamentally changed many industries, including the media. And computer science is actually the basis, the language for that change. You know, and I think in the past, in many industries, this includes the media. You know, we've looked at people with computer science skills as the guy in the IT room, you know, in the corner fixing your computer. But I think more and more, as we're seeing the internet kind of change so many so many industries, you're going to see that you know people with those computer science skills are going to be I guess the real winners of that, and I think you're already seeing in newsrooms uh, where you know computer science skills are highly sought after, and I think that's a trend. You know, and I think well the problem is that in Australia and in the US actually there aren't enough uh, CS graduates 
for tech companies by themselves. So it's going to be very tough for media companies to, to, to try to recruit them as well. But I think that's something that I think uh, is, is going to need to change to be able to, I guess, ride this digital wave that's, that's kind of done a lot of... I've got perhaps a follow-up question on, on that. I remember I was talking to someone in the LA Times who was saying one of the dilemmas they were finding is that the traditionally people who were highly skilled in technology would love to come and work for media companies. But now media companies are a long way down. The people don't you know want to go to Google or they want to go to Facebook or, or how do how do media organisations grapple with that? I, I think um, facing the choice yeah, with these skills. It's a great question. It's hard to compete with the scooters and, and the food at Google sometimes I have to say. But I, I think, you know, uh, it's not about finding. It's not that just about finding engineers who want to do journalism. It's actually finding journalists who want to do computer science. So that wanting to find musicians who want to do computer science. You know, one of the big buzzwords you'll start to hear a lot more of is CS plus X, right? Computer science plus X, right? Whether it's biology or medicine or, or journalism, you know, I think it is the understanding that again, you know, computer science underpins so much of what is going to be innovation in the future. You know, it's not going to be all innovation, but so much of it. Um, so I think to answer the question is about finding the journalist who wants to learn computer science rather than trying to get the engineer who wants to be a journalist. Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay. Hi, Alistair Grady, filmmaker, award-winning apparently. <laughs> um, just on the point of innovation, so it's a bit like the first and only time unproduced group writers run around with their next blockbuster on their laptop. They create their greatest work ever and then move on something that um, sometimes I see from journalism as well. Um, I just want to come back to Mary and Steph, particularly, and anyone else who wants to comment, but uh, back to this making the games thing, making games for young people to, to blast a supposedly quality member of society um, could lead to inciting bad violence. I lived through the London riots and also survived a Rebecca Brooks and Virginia Wheeler bogus unauthorised story that resulted in people attacking me in the streets of London, driving cars with me in south-west London, and having bottles and bricks thrown at me for months. It doesn't come across to me as an innovative, um, as innovative. It's just extending the Mitcham pub, which I think you might understand better than Campbelltown pub. Um, so, so to Mary, is this, this kind of concept is highly provocative, but used in such a negative way, doesn't that make it a little bit dangerous? What's the context? Boris Johnson volunteers to be the um, banner I saw a headline on my Facebook feed today about Boris Johnson and, and the water cannons, and that's not what I interpreted and saw. And that's why when you mention it tonight, I'm thinking, oh yeah. <laughs> but in connection with this, and, and the question comes across in both ways, um, you mentioned that, um, that a lot of the commentary you get is a political story. You'd want to make a comment um, to get likes, and then there's a psychological empowerment that um, is, is a show of herd mentality, but nearly always inactive unless it's accompanied by an expression of anger and a loud protest. Do you think what you're saying is simply a low-level psychological reaction over a genuine understanding of broader facts? And that sort of ties into both the Boris Johnson story as well as what you're saying. Because we don't see people get out there and do anything political. What we see is aggression and riots over things that, in most cases, people have never read the full news article, nor have they read the material that relates to the news article and feeds it nor have they read the entire element of 
you know, for example, the recent budget handed down as to what's bad because journalists put out this little bit, someone comments, it loses mm -hmm. loses control. I, I suppose this is sorry, I'm just kind of uh, wrap that wrap, is this point of we kind of all start from the space where we think journalism is a force for good and is a, is a good thing, but a lot of people don't think that. Does that shape and increasingly people? Oh, not, not perhaps not increasingly, but not, not necessarily say that. Do you think that makes it particularly challenging in engaging in this space? Because someone like say junkie would that be? Yeah, I think that there's a real risk of you know what you're talking about is you know people who are kind of just dropping into an article because it has like a really a headline that makes them feel like smart or funny and they want to share it to be like this is what I think but they don't actually read beyond the headline. There's a real risk with that. So I think it's a journalist's role to try and engage them further than that to not alienate them with too much information, to give them proper background, and to create a piece in a tone that they can relate to. Um, the second part of the question, I think, you know, that there is there is a real risk with um, echo chamber types of, of journalism where it's people shouting the same thing at each other and ultimately nothing gets done. And that's another thing that it's, it's down to journalists and editors to try and make sure that they're not contributing to that circle of people just yelling and trying to be actually helpful and constructive. Um, but it's, yeah, it's absolutely important. It's important for that to be in front of mind. G'day. Thanks for um, sharing your wisdom. Um, it costs money to hire journalists. Google News doesn't hire journalists. It just aggregates stories. And in the industry, most people are a bit worried um, as to where the money is going to come from because you can't make advertising revenue off Facebook or Twitter. You can get brand loyalty and following, but you can't get money. So in the future, how can we monetize journalism so that we can all keep our jobs? There isn't one answer to this question. And at the moment, I don't think anybody knows. Um, it's the brutally honest situation that we find ourselves in. Journalism isn't going to look like it does now in 10 years' time. And it will look different again in 10 years after that. The answer might be that we will all end up um, slaves to Google Ads, um, which would be pretty awful, but is a possibility. We might all end up behind paywalls, although that's unlikely unless the ABC gets really badly defunded. <laughs> um, because there will always be a free, a, a free news outlet here whose job it is to make sure that the popula population is well informed. Um, that there isn't, right now, there isn't one model that we can all point to and say this is going to save journalism. There are just lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of people doing experiments, big ones, small ones, successful ones in a few cases, unsuccessful ones, and in the vast majority of the others. Um, and that's not a particularly kind of bright, shiny, hopeful thing. But journalism, journalism as a pastime, as a profession, mm -hmm. is going to continue to happen. It might not necessarily be for big organisations with these kind of vast matters. It might be in small ways around the edges. It might be someone providing a useful service on a website that gets them enough money that they can do it one day a week. It might be that, you know, it turns out the paywalls are actually the answer and we all work for the Australians forever. Um, we just don't know right now. I think it also depends on um, the, the individual organisation. And, and what their you know, model is currently and how they see that progressing into the future. So no, no one's going to have the, the same answer, really. I think um, you know, it is right in the sense that it is kind of uh, still experimenting. I mean, you look at something like YouTube, for example, um, and there are now you know, thousands of people, if not more than thousands of people, who are earning you know, a full-time living, six-figure salaries, 
from you know YouTube channels, whether it be about uh, you know beauty or news um, or music and what, all that kind of stuff. So I think you know we also have to look at the fact that the internet has you know democratized publishing. You know, anyone now can actually tomorrow go and start a YouTube channel. They don't need to go to Channel Seven or Channel Nine to have a got a show idea. Uh, you know, and they can go and, and have a go, and if it's great content and people connect to it, then they can actually earn a living. So I think, you know, there are business models emerging, and, you know, obviously it's not, you know, I think there is a question in terms of journalism and whatnot, but I think, you know, we're at the beginning of this kind of conversation rather than talking at the end of it. Uh, it is globalisation part of it. A lot of these people who are successful on YouTube are successful because they're able to market whatever they're doing to a global audience. Mm-hmm. I suppose that's particularly challenging for for, Australia, for people living in Australia. Yeah, I mean, we, we just had something called the YouTube Fan Festival, which is kind of bizarre because it was full of 14-year-old girls screaming at people I didn't actually recognise. <laughs> but, you know, there are all these people in Australia who are actually making a living from making YouTube channels, and I don't know who they are, and we may not know who they are, but certainly they've got a big audience and making a living out of it. Um. Hi, my name is Ramin, um, and I'm an editor of B2B publication, but I've worked at traditional media organizations before. My question is, um, new media journalists and new media organizations are often accused of sensationalizing headlines to get clicks and traffic and so on, which we, some of us call clickbaits. So this question is for um, some of uh, the speakers who employ journalists. How do you evaluate uh, your journalist's um, performance now? Is it based on the merit of the stories and the news stories they're writing, or is it based on traffic they're generating? And the second part of the question is, for young journalists who are starting out in their careers, and if they want to think about ethical journalism, and when I went to journalism school, we had media law and ethics as a big part of our uh, training. How should ethical journalists think about future of journalism? Is it going to be based on traffic, or is it going to be reporting the news that nobody, nobody is reading on the trends or nobody knows about? So I'd be curious to see what your... Um, perspectives on that. Thank you. Um, so firstly, I don't think this is a new phenomenon, the thing about sensationalizing headlines. I mean, I, I speak as a British person here. <laughs> we have had some experience around things like Freddie Star ate my hamster. <laughs> this isn't new. This has been going on for a long time, since a long time before the internet. Anybody blaming the internet for it is missing out on that incredibly important context. Secondly, in terms of ethical journalism and evaluating journalism, it depends on your organisation. For some organisations that sell ads, um, traffic has to be part of the equation, but not necessarily at the individual journalist level. Um, we've seen some really interesting stuff. So Gawker has done something very interesting, where it's one journalist's job, and that journalist rotates, it's not just one person. It's one person's job each day to write the stories that bring in the traffic and everybody else works on the stuff that they feel is the most important. And what you get out of that is essentially a kind of a broccoli and chocolate model, in that it's one person's job to make all the chocolate, which brings lots of people to the website, and everybody else works on the broccoli stuff, which people don't necessarily click on at first sight, they don't necessarily love it, but it has to exist and you need to eat it, and pretty much everybody sooner or later does eat some broccoli at some point in their life. and it's models, I think it's models like that. The answer is probably a blend. It probably isn't one thing or the other. Um, it's, it's the idea that you have to get people through the door. And be, because fundamentally now, we're competing 
We're not competing just with another newspaper anymore or just with another channel. We're competing with literally everything else that's possible to do with one of these. And that's a lot of stuff. I have Candy Crush on here, and that alone will take hours. You know? <laughs> so you've got, to, you've got to allow for people to need to be entertained, but then you've also got to give them the opportunity and also to trust them that when they want to find out about the politics, because most people will, when they want to find out about what's happening in Iraq right now, because a lot of people will, you've got to trust them that they'll come to you again and that they'll find out that that's what you do as well. I agree 100% with what Mary said, but also just adding to that, um, there's so many websites that are popping up now, and it's it's the job of the website to um, present itself as a different type of brand. So it's really the discretion of the people behind that website, whether they want to be a brand, a brand that chases clicks, or a brand that chases proper journalism, or a brand that sits somewhere between the two. And I think, you know, you see sites like uh, BuzzFeed have a leaderboard at their office which says the top 10 stories, and it's the job of the journalist employed by BuzzFeed to chase that traffic. So if Justin Bieber's number one, it's the job of the 20 people in the newsroom to try and churn out as much Justin Bieber as possible. And that's their brand, that's what they're known for, and that's what they're loved for. And they're using some of the money they make from that to feed into longer journalism now. They've started BuzzFeed, they're doing proper journalism. You know, I think every editor of every website is going to say that they want to be publishing important content. Um, and it's up to them how much they want to push back on, on clicks. Um, and I totally agree, clickbait isn't a dirty word. I think if, if, you've, if you've gotten a, a story that's really important and you haven't managed to find a way to get people to click on it, that's your fault as an editor. You need to get people to come and read that story. Well, I think the other thing about BuzzFeed is that clicks are not just something that happens one day. We're not daily newspapers anymore in that sense. And, and I think a lot of the BuzzFeed longer form articles are over time will actually attract a large number of uh, people as well. Yeah. I think one last question here. Yeah, this is another social media question. Um, I, I'm sure a lot of people in here as well like uh, and follow a bunch of media outlets on Facebook and we've probably all got one that we've subsequently unliked because they do updates way too frequently mm -hmm. and it fills you up the feed and it becomes uh, incredibly frustrating. At the other end of the spectrum though, there's ones that do updates maybe once a week and you start to forget they exist. So how do you effectively strike a balance between engaging your audience day to day and not overloading them to the point that they become frustrated? Um, <laughs> we've got a, uh, probably not the best example to answer that question because we only publish about 10 stories a day um, and we try to put something online once an hour which we decided was not too cloggy. Um, the other thing to remember is only 10% of your Facebook fans are going to see everything you post. Um, Facebook's been changing their algorithms recently and, and it's making a lot of media companies very distressed because well, we have 23,000 fans on Facebook and some of our posts get seen by a thousand people. Um, I think you do need to, to make sure you're not fighting people's feeds, but you also need to understand that you're competing with hundreds of other, of other websites and, and you need to work out, you need to listen to comments, you need to listen to people who are saying, can you guys stop posting the same story over and over again, it's really driving me nuts. Um, but you also have to, you know, things change, keep updated, see what Facebook's saying. Facebook said when we launched that once an hour was about right, and so that's what we went with. Um, I think the most important thing you do in this situation is you experiment. Um, Facebook, much like Google, is a completely black box now. Nobody understands how Facebook's algorithm for showing you stuff works. Facebook probably don't really mm. understand it at all. Um, but we do know that they just turn dials up and down arbitrarily, pretty much at random, um, because they can and because they want to see what happens. Mm. 
So something that works now might not work next week. Something that worked last week and didn't wasn't too cluttered might suddenly change and become far too cluttered because Facebook's decided that you, specifically you, not everybody else, just you, ought to see every single update that's posted by one particular page in your feed because you're in a test. There's nothing we can do to control this stuff. All we can do is try and look at the data, look at what our readers are telling us, and then try and strike a balance, as, as Beth said, between um, what's best for our organisation and what's best for the readers. Yeah, look, we, um, we are one of those organisations that only really strikes out once a week, So, but it's, it's a select, select audience, and we are, um, are mindful of not uh, annoying people with too much in, in their inbox, but it's, it's primarily done by email with us, and that is the prime driver for our website. Um, and I think I think that there, there's something, you know, we also post to Facebook and, and LinkedIn and Twitter, but because we have no control over that, uh, our main focus really is the direct communication between us and our our audience via, via email. And so you, I think a lot of people say this, that email, no one ever talks about email, but it's still a major driver of, for, for a lot of news and activity. Yeah. Um, I think one last speak over that here. Yeah. Um, just for Mary, I, I suppose the very start of what she was talking about, when she was talking about um, comments and comment threads and, and various ways of doing that, post-moderation, pre-moderation. But um, we had a case uh, earlier last year where we basically got a, a libel case uh, against us because of comments in a thread which was post-moderated. Um, and in the end, it, it, it stretched on, but we ended up defending it. But there, I, I feel there's, there's certainly a case that this could be happening more and more, just by the nature of we can't actually keep up with the amount of comments that are coming through. And we've kind of toyed with the idea of going back to pre-moderation on a basis that otherwise we won't be able to keep up to it. But then, of course, you lose the ability to drive traffic and, I mean, that's an argument in itself. But I just want to know what your thoughts are on that and whether that's sort of like where, I mean, a potential danger area for the media in general. I think comments generally are particularly dangerous. And, I mean, Australia has harsher defamation laws even than Britain does, which is a surprise coming here because we thought ours were the worst. Um, but here it's possible to be sued for uh, linking to stuff that's defamatory and also for, um, those, we're kind of awaiting a text case here really around comments on a Facebook page which isn't a platform that um, a media organisation controls um, but which there seems to be sort of, kind of hints that we're going in the direction of being held liable for comments on that platform anyway which is slightly eyebrow raising. It's a massive danger area, but fundamentally, if you don't have the moderation staff and the moderation cover to moderate your threads effectively, then you shouldn't be opening up comments. True, mm. but I mean, do you think there's the way comments are growing, you know, certainly if your audience might have a story which goes crazy, you, you might want to have that commentary going. I mean, sometimes it can be very difficult to keep up with that flow. I mean, it's the only way to go to pre-moderation because that really does slow the way that works. I think, there are, I think there are steps between that. So, for instance, we have a very robust report function. Um, and fundamentally, if the, one of the first things that has to happen in a libel suit is people have to alert you that there is problematic content. And then you have to, then you have to respond to that. What I haven't, what I'm, I'm not clear yet on whether simply the existence of that content on a website at all um, is enough to trigger a serious suit. It hasn't happened to us yet. Um, and I, I don't think I don't think that's been properly tested in Australian law yet. I think that's going to happen probably at some time, at some point in the next sort of 
probably the next five years. And it'll just be really interesting to see which way it goes. Um, yeah, it's slightly terrifying. Interesting in a terrifying way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, thank you very much. Oh, one last question over here. Up the back. Uh, my question is about are you confident that news will continue to recruit eyeballs or listeners or viewers or is it doomed to be an elite and uh, uh, class-based activity? Well, we were talking earlier about followers, but of course even journalists who have lots of followers don't have a lot of followers by comparison to people who do have lots of followers. Mm. And there's reason people are following you when you say them, and that's that closed loop again. Um, I think it's a really scary thing. Um, I'm no Kanye West. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, look, I think... I think also a lot, of, a lot of the conversation we've had here tonight has focused on uh, not just mainstream uh, media, but, but I think what we're, what's been missing from the conversation here and indeed is missing from a lot of the focus of media companies is localism. Um, so people, people uh, bemoan the fact that the, uh, the photographic department at Fairfax has been shut down and Getty, everyone's using Getty images and it's all very generic. Really, I think what there's an opportunity in localism. There's an opportunity where people are reading stuff that relates directly to them. There's a pilot project uh, been going on with the ABC, which um, is a, it's a mobile application. I can't remember the name of it, but it, basically you input your postcode and it aggregates... Uh, content related to where you live and, uh, and sends it to your phone. And, and I think that there, there is the opportunity where you break down whatever class barriers you know, that you might think exist because people, people are engaged in what's going on around them and at the end of the day people have their own lives. They don't necessarily all live through the media like maybe we do um, and there's other things to to, to worry about in the course of your day. So you've got to strike a chord with your audience. And I guess news has always been class-based in the sense of what one, people, one person thinks is news, someone else thinks something else is news. And a lot of the YouTube channels particularly are journalism, but not as, not as we know. Not all of it's journalism, I promise you. There's a lot of cats as well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, we will wrap up uh, there. Will you, uh, will you please thank Seth, Mary, Phil, and uh, I hope you leave here in equal parts exhilarated and terrified about where the world's going. <laughs> now, our next event uh, here will be at uh, 6 pm on July the 17th, and that will be uh, Pamela Williams in conversation with Richard Aidy about her book, Killing Fairfax. Uh, and if you're interested, be sure to visit walkleys.com for all the news and to register. Uh, and if you don't have anything on tomorrow night, or even if you do and you're looking for something better, we're hosting a screening of Anna Bronowski's new documentary on North Korea, Aim High in Creation. Uh, at the Chevelle tomorrow evening at 6.30. Uh, if you'd like to go, there are still some free tickets available, uh, but you should email walkleys at walkleys.com to register, and you can grab one of the orange flyers on your way out for details. Uh, and finally, uh, if you want to kick on with tonight's conversation, you can adjourn to the veranda bar for informal drinks, uh, but before you go, make sure you pick up a fly to, launch, to learn all about our newly launched Friends of the Walkley Foundation. It's a great way to help support 
to Walkley Foundation and to support journalism and to support us in our endeavour to protect and support quality journalism. Uh, thanks again to our panel, thanks to all of you, and good night. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Walkley Talks on iTunes and follow the Walkleys on Twitter and Facebook for new episode updates to be the first to know about upcoming Walkley events and news.